Mark and Marilyn, thank you for sharing with us and just um, kind of wearing your hearts on the outside so that we can see them and understand. And it's, it's not for the faint at heart at all. Well, listen, y'all, tonight is a real, real treat because we have um, really an expert in the field, if you will. Tonight we have Rick Morton is here, and he lives in Birmingham. And he has authored two books, Some of, uh, both of them you may be familiar with. One of them is Orphanology, The Awakening to Gospel-Centered Adoption and Orphan Care. And then the other one is No Orphans, Mobilizing the Church for Global Orphanology. And he, in fact, himself, he and his wife Denise have adopted three children internationally. As I mentioned before, he works for, he is the Vice President of Engagement for Lifeline Children's Services. He and his wife also are co-founders of Promise 139, which is an international orphan-based uh, orphan hosting ministry. And so if anybody can speak to shepherding and loving the fatherless, it is Rick. So it is a real treat to have him here tonight. So we all welcome Rick Morton. Thank you. Okay, so let me just totally, that was the most gracious introduction that I could imagine, but let me just totally undo it and tell you, I, I'm not an expert in anything. I'm just a guy with a Bible. And, and, that's, and that's really kind of where this story starts for us. And I'm going to pull a little bit of that out and, and talk about it tonight. And so we'll try to, we'll do our best. Um, to honor the Lord and talk about some, some really important things with regard to the fatherless. Um, you know, I, I think that we sometimes don't really get Jesus. When, when, we're, when we're struggling in the New Testament to try to, to, try to understand who Jesus... I'm not, I'm not talking about like not understanding who Jesus is not understanding his work, but I think sometimes we miss his personality. Um, you know, I, I think socially we're we're predisposed to to not get some things about about who Jesus is. I mean, think about every movie that you've ever seen that Jesus that that tries to portray or tries to you know depict Jesus, right? He looks like that dude that was hanging on all of our grandmother's wall. You know, that, that sort of that faraway look in his eye and that sort of, you know, wispy 70s looking hairdo and he's blonde and blue eyed and, and he's just not anything like what the New Testament presents about Jesus. And, and more than that, when you, when you look at the, the way he's depicted, he's always this guy. First of all, he always speaks in a British accent. If you guys can explain that to me, I, I, don't, I don't get it. But, but he always speaks with a, with a British accent, and he's always aloof. He's like this guy that's like looking over the horizon, seeing things that nobody else is seeing, and he's not really present and not really participating in the lives of the people that he's with. When I look at the New Testament, that's not who I see at all in Jesus. I, I see Jesus as someone who who loved his creation as someone who, who was very present with the people that he walked with, someone who identified with the suffering of people around him and, and healed people and gave and engaged and lived in relationship. And that the, very, the very idea of who Jesus is is that whole thing about, about him coming and and dwelling among us in John 1. You know, the, if, you, if you geek out and go into the Greek, what that says is, is that he came and he pitched his tent with us. He came and dwelled and, and made his home here among us. In that spirit, I want, want to take a look at a passage tonight. We're going to kind of jump around several places in the Bible, but I want to, I want to dig in for just a second in, into this passage. So um, Mark chapter 12. A really familiar passage, um, beginning in verse 28. It says, And one of the scribes came up, and he heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked them, Which commandment is the most important of all? 
Jesus answered, the most important of all is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You, you have truly, I mean, come, seriously, Jesus, you're right. You, 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 you wrote all this and it, this, is, this, is, this is like coming from you in your heart, but you're right totally didn't get who Jesus was, right? The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and understanding with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after this, no one dared to ask him, any more questions? You know, you, you look at this encounter on the surface, and it seems like a snooty lawyer asking Jesus a, t- a question to try to to try to trap him. What we don't see is that that Jesus is pretty has a pretty high sense of irony in this passage. And not being people who lived in the first century, not understanding the customs, not walking in those things in those ways, we can very easily sort of pass over it and miss it. But think about this. Here's this scribe of Israel. Now, the scribe is, he's really like a spiritual lawyer, right? He's the, he's the guy who, who, because he copies the scriptures over and over and over every day, because he's the, because he's the ancient version of the printing press, he's the guy who's, who's come to know every jot and every tittle of the law. And, and so because he's that wrapped up in the law, he's also become the expert that everybody else goes to to ask questions about the law. Because he's in it all the time. And so when they have a question about what do they have to do in order to please God, what do they have to do in order to, to assert their obedience, what do they have to do in order to, to make God happy, the thing that they do is they go to the scribe and they say, you know the word, you, you know you know God's plan. Tell us, what do we have to do to make God happy? Now, kind of underneath that is, is a little bit of a, a feeling that what they're really coming to the scribe and saying is, tell us what minimum, minimum obedience looks like. What do we have to do in order to, to minimally make God happy? Tell us what the, you know, what does the law say? What is the, what's the loophole that I can get out with? Tell me the size of the sacrifice. Tell me the timing of the things that I have to do. Tell me. And so this is the spirit in which this guy comes to Jesus. Because he's the guy that all the time people are coming and saying, help us to understand how to, how to please God. Help us to understand how to be obedient. And help us to understand how to do that in a way that won't inconvenience us too much. And so when he says to Jesus, which one is the most important commandment? What's he trying to do? He's trying to cut his workload down. He's he's trying to bring some sense to all of it. He's trying to say, look, out of the ten, just give me one. Give me one that I can point people to and tell them them how how to do it and how to dive into it so that I can sort of put this one on the top shelf and tell people, if you will just do this, God's going to be really, really happy with you. And of course, what does Jesus answer? He says, love God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. Now, here's the joke. The scribe would have been wearing a a rig that was just totally kind of crazy in our eyes. He would have been wearing this long flowing robe and he would have had these tassels that would have been wrapped around his arms and they would have gone down from his, from his hands, probably like four or five, maybe six feet, like these big leather tassels that would be hanging off of his arms. And he would have had a phylactery, a leather box tied between his eyes that every waking moment of his life, he would have this thing tied right here between his eyes. And those tassels were there because they were there to remind him. They were there to slap him. They were there to be every time he got a drink and every time he adjusted his robe and every time he sat down and every time he rose up and every time he did anything, they were there to slap him, to remind him that he had that box between his eyes. And one of the verses that was contained in the box between his eyes was the Shema passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then that passage goes on to say that the responsibility that Israel had was to teach that to their children, to teach their children who God was, and to teach them what he had done, and to impress upon their hearts, to talk about it when they rose up, and when they sat down, when they went out, and when they came back, to paint it over the doorposts of their house, to talk about it through their day, to make it a part of the the very DNA of their lives. So what we get in this passage is we get a picture of a guy who was so wrapped up in religious things, who was handling the Word of God on a daily basis, who who was being asked by other people to interpret the Word of God and to help them to understand what it means to follow God. And, and, And he even in the way that he dressed and in the way that he ordered his life, his life was about trying to remind him about who God is, yet he missed the big E on the eye chart. He was the guy who had, been, who had been all of his life trying to, to do the right things and to say the right things and to be in the right place and to do all of that stuff, yet he had missed what Jesus went on to say. He said, it's about loving God with all of your heart. It's about devotion and all of your life and everything that you are and then loving others the way God loves them and extending yourself to them. I've got to tell you, there was a point in my life where I was that guy. 2003, I was teaching at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, was in a place where I was in the, in, like in the dream job, the thing that I thought God had cut me out to be. Got the opportunity on a daily basis to walk into classrooms and, and to teach young men and young women who were preparing to, to serve God in the church and preparing to, to, to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. That... And one day my wife came home and she looked me in the eye and she said, I, I've been praying about this and I think God's calling us to adopt. And I didn't even put my fork down. I just said, No. Absolutely not. In my mind, I was thinking, you know, I've I've seen Dateline. I know how this stuff can go. I've seen the risk that can be involved. No, 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 no. Not us. Not me. Not now. Fortunately, I have a wife who is, is an answer to prayer, one of the most godly women that I've ever had the privilege to know. Her service to me was that she didn't start like writing notes and lipstick on the mirror, you know, and like leaving open Bibles around the house and post-it notes on the steering wheel and all that sort of stuff. No, what she did is she did something that was far more subversive. She prayed like crazy. She was crazy enough to believe that story about the persistent widow and to take that, take that advice seriously. And so she said, look, I know what God's revealed, and I know that this isn't spiritual heartburn, and I know it's not bad pizza, and it's not going to go away. This is something that the Lord has called us to do. And so she got on her face before the Lord, and she began to pray for me. And, and I'll tell you that in my, I was so disquieted in my soul. It was like the hounds of heaven were pursuing me. But there was a point, there was kind of a crisis of belief that happened and part of that crisis of belief that happened was, was a, a, a moment that I can remember really pretty tangibly of, of saying to the Lord, God, I get that there, are, that there are kids that need families. I get that there's suffering in the world. I get that this is a huge problem. But Lord, how does this relate to the gospel? How does this relate to the big deal? How does this relate to the Great Commission? How does this relate to to the central thing that we've been called to do? Because you see, I'd grown up in a church that was probably not a whole lot different than the church that some of you grew up in, where where we, we didn't talk about things like social justice. We didn't talk about things like the, the healing of, of tangible hurts in people's lives and our place in that. No, we were scared of that stuff. That we talked a lot about sharing Jesus with people and telling people about, about what Christ had done for them and talking to them about, about their, their eternal destination, but we didn't talk a whole lot about their here and now because we were scared of some, some fabled slippery slope. 
And so very honestly, I just laid it before the Lord and I said, God, God, give me peace, please. Now, I've already confessed to you I'm a nerd. I, you know, I'm already talking about Greek up here, right? Nobody does that. So I began to just dig into the Word and began to wrestle and began to say, let's, let's, take, the, let's take the narrative of Scripture. And sure, I knew. I mean, I'd been neck deep in the Bible. I, I had a Ph.D. from a seminary. I'd, I'd done all of the stuff. I've been in Sunday school since, like, forever. I knew that the Bible said things about orphans. I knew that God had, had, had somewhere, somehow, kind of called us to be involved in that. But I didn't understand that there was anything really systematic and purposive about it. So I started at the beginning and I began to work and began to, began to look and began to dig and began to look and see, God, what is it? How does this relate to the gospel? Well, here's the beginning of the end of the story. The beginning of the end of the story is that God was gracious enough to me to begin to drop some crumbs. And a lot of you have had that kind of experience, right? That somewhere along the way, you went and you said, Lord, I need some answers. You're doing something in my heart with regard to, to, to what's happening in our community or what's happening in our world with the fatherless. God, I need you to do something to, to help me to know where you are in the middle of all this. And God very faithfully has ministered to lots and lots of us and dropped those crumbs along the way. And so I feel like that, that, that God was able to... to, to to, to teach me some things about his heart as an adoptive father, about uh, t enough that, that, that in a very clumsy way I was ready to step out and say, okay, Lord, we'll, we'll do it. We'll go. We'll adopt. So we went through the process. We adopted our first son from Ukraine in like the end of 2003, the beginning of 2004, but I'm going to tell you something. The, the experience of adopting our son, and particularly the experience of being with him in his orphanage in Ukraine, messed me up. I will never forget the smell. It, it was this smell of like sterile but sour, kind of institutional but not quite clean. And it looked like a warehouse for kids. And, and I remember that when we met our son, that, that, that one of the first things that happened with him is, is, is he had pneumonia. He went to the hospital like the day after we met him. Had a really rough time, and for a couple of weeks, it was, it was sort of him getting better or maybe not getting better and touch and go, and, and he stayed in the hospital, and then there was a point where he was taken back to the orphanage, and we, you know, we got back into that, that sort of regular getting to visit him a couple of times a day, something a lot of you guys know about, right? But they put him in quarantine because they didn't want him to make all the other kids sick. And when he was in quarantine, there was a little boy that was across the hall from him. And every day, we would go and we would play with our son and, 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 and we'd have time with him and, and we'd bond. And every day, this little boy would walk to the door of his room and he would stand there, prevented by his caregivers from coming across the threshold of the door and joining us. And that child wrecked my life. Because there was a point where we, we took our little, you know, 22-pound, way too small, 18-month-old little boy and wrapped him up and put new clothes on him and went before a judge and, and he was declared ours and, and all of the spiritual illusions that we could make to that. And then we wrapped him up and we brought him home. And you know what? That was good. But I've never quite gotten past that little boy that sat across the hall and wondered what in the world what in the world happened to him? And so there was another crisis of belief that happened. 
coming home and saying, God, I get the fact that, 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 that adoption is good and that, and that you have called us, that, that adoption is something that we're called to, but, but God, with, with 130, 140, 150 million plus orphans in the world, we will never adopt our way out of the, the problem. It's too complex. It's too, it's too challenging. It's, it, it, it's too much of a legal entanglement. God, what would you have your people to do? in order to, to respond to the crisis appropriately. And so there was time digging back into the Word. There was time really beginning to wrestle with the Lord and say, Lord, what is it that you would have us as your church do? If you've got a Bible, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 10. I know that for those of you that are cross-point folks, that Brad preached this passage this morning... And I know he did an excellent job, and he did a better job than I would do with it. And so I'm not going to try to redo his sermon. But I do want to point something out to you that, that begins to, to help us to grasp an understanding of what it is that God is up to with regard to this idea of, of caring for orphans and caring for the fatherless. We're going to start in verse 12. We're just going to read the read the rest of the chapter. It says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Does that sound familiar? Sounds like Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? It sounds like that, that same refrain that we hear over and over again about, about the need for us to serve God with all of ourselves and to do it faithfully. Behold, the Lord your God... <clears throat> Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and, and the heaven of heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, you are this day. Circumcised, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And we'll stop there. So what's going on in, in Deuteronomy chapter 10 is this is kind of that summarization of all of the history and all the law where, where, where the, the, the people are kind of being placed back on track again. And, and, and there's, this, there's this thing that, that happens here where, where Moses is able to say to the people on behalf of God, Pay attention. This is who God is. God is, 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 he is great. He is mighty. He is to be served. He is holy. And he requires of you in the cleaning of your heart to care for those who can't care for themselves. That as a response to the cleansing of your heart, you're to care for those that can't care for themselves. Now, wait a minute. You know that whole circumcise your, your heart business? I'm way too Baptist to use that word a second time, so we're just going to go with it from using it the first time. But the truth is that we're really uncomfortable with, with what does that mean? What he's saying is, he's saying, don't, don't mark the outside of yourself. Don't change your appearance. Don't change, don't change the, the trappings of the outside of your life. Change the trappings of the inside of your life. Do spiritual surgery into your life. And out of what happens in your life, serve outwardly to take care of those who can't care for themselves. Why? Because that is what your God does. That is who your God is. And your responsibility is to act like Him. Here was the point. That we are incapable of doing that kind of surgery on our own heart, right? But that's what the gospel does. That's what Christ's work does, is that it remakes us from the inside, that we are made over by the Spirit, that we are declared righteous before God, and that in, in that surgery, in that, 
in that circumcision that happens upon the heart that one of the things that God requires of his people is for his people to look like him and to act like him in tangible ways. And over and over and over, we see in the scriptures that there are three groups of people that we keep coming back to that are mentioned here in Deuteronomy chapter 10. It's, it's the orphan, it's the widow, and it's the sojourner. Why are the orphan and the widow and the sojourner so important? Why are they a refrain over and over and over as God tells his people to care for them? They're, they're important because they, they, they are in a condition they can't care for themselves and they need someone else to come and to champion them. They particularly are, 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 are the recipient or they're, they're, there has something that has happened to them that they cannot fix. Folks, that's us. That's who we are. We are those because of the brokenness of our own sin that we're in a condition that we cannot fix. And that Jesus didn't leave us, but he stepped out of heaven and he came and he lived and he died and he rose again and he's, and he's bought the opportunity for us to be adopted into the family of God and to be reconciled to God. And he's calling us out as his people to look like him and to act like him in all manner of places in our culture. You see, over and over and over, what God is calling Israel to do is he's calling Israel to take care of orphans and to take care of widows and to take care of sojourners because he wants them to be qualitatively different than all of the peoples around them. That while all of the other nations around Israel are victimizing these groups and taking advantage of them and making profit on, on their condition and, 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 and doing all manner of unspeakable things to them, God is saying, esteem them, take care of them, do for them, love them, give them rights. Why? Because that's what I have done for you. Prior to the cross, this was, this was sort of the mighty Casey moment of Israel. They were pointing over the fence and they were saying, this is what God's going to do in Jesus. That he's going to come and he's going to take care of you and he's going he's to take, he's he's take care of your sin and he's going, to, he's going to provide for you as a father because he is the father to the fatherless and he is the defender of the defenseless. And we need you to see that our God is different because of how we live into the world. You know, I, I kind of think of it like this. We, you know, uh, you heard in the introduction, we have a large family. We have a daughter that's 19. We have boys that are, that are 14 and 13 that increasingly I'm beginning to believe that I cannot afford to feed. Right? And, and so coming, coming to grips with the idea that I have two, two teenage boys in my home, one of the things that we love is we love Sam's. And we particularly love Sam's on Saturday, right? <laughs> Why? Because they've got all those little stations set up all over the place. And so we just call that lunch. Right, you know, and, and, and we've kind of figured out with our kids, we, we told our boys, you know, you can go like try on a jacket and then go make another lap and they won't even know it's you. So you can just keep going back and it'll be okay. Just put the jacket back, put it on the hanger, everybody will. Now, but, but seriously, that's not what Sam's intends for you to do, right? They're not intending for you to go and to get a cheap buffet on their nickel. What they're intending for you to do is they're intending for you to go buy those little carts and get that little minuscule piece of whatever that thing is and 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 taste it and love it and and want some more of it so that you will go and buy the 55 gallon drum of it that most of it will ruin in your freezer right that's that's what sam is hoping for sam's is hoping for that's exactly that or, or not exactly but that's kind of what god is doing with orphan care with regard to the gospel that, that part of what he is asking us to do is to put a taste on the lips of people of the kingdom of god and that when we step into suffering and when we act practically on behalf of a child who has no rights and no ability to be able to help themselves, what we are doing before the world is we're putting a taste on the lips of the world of Christ and of his kingdom. And we're pointing to a day out there in the future because we know the end of the story. We know that one day Jesus is coming back. 
And that all of this stuff that's a mess and all of this stuff that, that, that continues to be broken, that we continue to live in the midst of, that at some point the king is going to reign in his kingdom and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And I don't care if you're pre-pan post or none, it doesn't matter what your eschatology is. What we know is, is that Jesus wins and he sets it right in the end. And in that kingdom, there will be no orphans. There will be no kids who lose their parents because of indifference or because of abuse or because of neglect or because of death. There will be no widows because spouses won't die from things that they shouldn't die from but are the result of sin and brokenness in the world and and, and the mess that we live in. We won't draw lines between countries and fight over stuff that we're not entitled to that ultimately belongs to God. None of that's going to exist anymore. But that for you and me right now, as we look toward that kingdom, that one of the things we have to do is we have to step out as a church, all of us, and to begin to put a taste on the lips of the world through how we do things like orphan care, seeking justice in small ways that point to the justice that Christ has sought and paid for. Okay, James one twenty seven, right? That's the verse that we ought to put up on the wall. That's the one that, that, that's kind of the rallying cry for this movement, right? Pure religion is this, that you visit widows and orphans in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. That's the Morton version, but it's close enough, right? Now, we all know and we've all, we've all dealt with like the, the idea that, that visiting orphans isn't about carrying them a donut or doing, doing something kind or patting them on the head. It's about pastoring them. It's about, it's about entering into their suffering with them. It's about walking with them. It's about, it's about shepherding them. It's about discipling them. Here's the thing. I think in the church, we've got a huge problem, and the huge problem is that we look at that verse, and we take it, and we divide it in half, and we look at half of it differently than we look at the other half. Because this whole business about taking care of orphans, and by the way, I realize that I'm preaching to the choir. I'm just trying to give you guys ammunition at this point. But, but that whole thing about visiting widows and orphans in their affliction, I, I, there are a lot of people that sit in our churches Sunday after Sunday, and their understanding is that is a good thing for somebody to do. That is a good thing for people who are called out to do. That's a good thing for people that are called to adopt or called to foster or, or called to, to, to minister to, to orphans globally. That's a good thing for them to do. Okay, let's take the second half of the verse, that whole keeping oneself unstained from the world business. Let me just wonder out loud with you for just a minute. If Brad were to stand in this pulpit next Sunday and he were to say something along the lines of this, personal holiness is an option. Take it or leave it. You know, you can, you can choose to live in a way that reflects Christ and that, and that shows Christ to the world, you, but, but personal holiness is really not something that's, that's really required. You know, that, 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 that he buys into that whole thing that Paul was talking about, about, you know, sin more and grace will abound more. So, so he says, you know what, they're, we're just going to have a personal holiness team. And so they're just going to work really hard at, being, at, at living in a way that they demonstrate what, what the Christ life looks like to the community. But the rest of us, party time. There'd be an elders meeting, wouldn't there? Probably before he got off the platform. Going, dude, you have missed it somewhere. There needs to be some accountability. You need to go back and rethink this thing. Because, because we understand that that keeping oneself unstained from the world thing, it applies to all of us. And it's not an option. Well, so does the first half of the verse. And we have evidence from the beginning of the story to the end of the story that widows and orphans and and aliens are not just three examples that God uses in order to give us a good illustration. They are three special classes of people that God continues to mention over and over and over again that he wants his people to step up and to care for because when we do, we give the world a picture of what the gospel looks like. Go go back to to Matthew chapter 25. One more point here. 
Matthew chapter 25, talking about the final judgment, right? It says, when the Son of Man comes into glory and all his angels with him, that he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison. You came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you a sick, see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly, I say to you, as you did to one of the least of my brothers, then you did to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For when I was hungry, you gave me no food. When I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. When I was a Stranger, you did not welcome me. When I was naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly, I say of you, you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And then these will go go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Okay, what do we know Jesus is not saying? What we know Jesus is not saying is he's not saying, line up and do all of this stuff because when you check off enough boxes, you're going to earn your way into my favor, right? Because we have so much evidence elsewhere in the New Testament that Jesus has said to us that there's no way you can earn my favor. There's no way you can earn yourself out of the hole. There's no way that you can make yourself righteous. So what he's saying here is not that we should do all of this stuff because somehow we're going to merit God's favor by doing it. What he's, what he's saying here is, is those who have been transformed by the Holy Spirit, those who have been bought with a price, those who are in Christ, will do this because we've not been saved by good works. We have been saved to do good works. If you squeeze a grape, what do you get? Grape juice, right? If you squeeze a Christian, what you ought to get is good works. That when, that when we're put under pressure, when we're squeezed, what ought to come out is the kind of stuff that looks like orphan care. All right, I want to leave you tonight with one kind of big, hairy, audacious idea. And that's this. What if... God has given us the challenge of of the orphan epidemic that we see in the world as an opportunity for his glory to be put on display. What if he he has put before us such a problem that we cannot begin to get our our, our heads around it and we cannot begin to strategize our way out of it? But that he's told us enough to say, That I want you as a church to go. I want you as a church all to be involved. I want all of you as a church, as a body, to, to engage in the suffering of orphans around the world. I want you to take what you have. I want you to take what you've been given. I I want you to take not, not what you can, 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 can try to find or contrive or make, but I just want to take, want you to take what you've been given and I want you to go to them. And I want you to open your life to them. And some, of, and some of that may mean that opening your life to them is bringing them into your home. Some of it may mean that it's creating a temporary opportunity. Some of it may mean that we're empowering churches among the nations to do adoption and to do foster care. It may mean that we're going and teaching job skills and life skills to, to kids who, who, are, who are living outside of the hope of a family in order to, to break the orphan cycle. There are all kinds of things that that might mean. But here's the one thing it surely means is that we put our focus on the idea that the thing that we're called out to do is to make disciples of every orphan that walks the face of the earth. That our reason for entering into foster care, our reason for entering into adoption, our reason for entering into global orphan care, our reason for entering into equipping and preparing families is so that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ could wrap around all of those people And could bring them to a place where they're prepared to follow Jesus. And I I get to sit 
and, and, and spent a lot of time with a lot of people that are probably as crazy as I am, if not crazier. We started to talk about what, what would happen. You know, this whole orphan care thing that's happening in the church, this whole movement that's happening in the church, could it be that the Lord is calling us as his church out to reach orphans with the gospel, to, to, to disciple and to make disciples of orphans because they are the ones that, that are to carry the gospel to the nations? That they are the ones that are to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth because they're already there. And how much, like, how much like God is it that he would take something that seems impossible and seems like foolishness to us and that he would work it for his glory? So that we begin to see our, our, our move and our push in orphan care not as something where we're going to help kids out there somewhere who are victims. But that we see them as treasures to be grown up, to know Christ, to be discipled so that they might be the agents to reach their countries, their cities, and their very homes for Christ. And I believe that, that that's what Christ is calling us out to do. But it's not going to happen without all of us. It's not going to happen without business people in your church and, 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 and people of trade in your churches who are willing to extend themselves to go and take what they know and to invest it into kids halfway around the world who need to know how to, how to make a living and need life skills and need, 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 need job skills and need to be able to be discipled. It's not going to happen un- until we as a church begin to realize that our dive into foster care is about about ministering to kids that are in care, but also ministering to the families that they come from. Becoming disciplers of of those families of origin so that when the system is trying to seek reunification and it's slanted to do that, that these kids are being put back into families where where they'll be nurtured and grown to know and to love Jesus because Jesus has done something in the lives of their parents. It's only going to happen when we begin to think radically different about what it is that we do to care for the fatherless. I am so excited about a church like Crosspoint. I know there are some of you that are here that are, that are not a part of, of Crosspoint, but I can tell you the partnership that we've been able to have with this church and the idea that, that, that this church sees the bigger picture. And I've been so blessed to, to meet some of the rest of you that are part of other churches in the community that are alongside, and you guys are thinking the same way, and, and that I believe God's going to do something here in Columbus. For His glory, for the sake of the fatherless, to build disciples to make disciples for the glory of Christ. Can I pray for you? Father, we, Lord, we thank you. God, we thank you that you, that you loved us enough that when we were beyond hope, when we, God, couldn't fix our own problem, that, God, you, you came after us. Jesus, you stepped out of heaven and you walked among us and you gave yourself for us and that, and that, Lord, through your work, we can be adopted into the family of God. Father, I want to pray for the people that are here tonight and for the churches that are represented in God for this community. God, I want to ask you to do something special here. God, do something for the sake of your name. God, for the fame of, of you and you alone. God, something that will point to the truth of your gospel and God will point to the coming kingdom. God, I pray that as, as this community sees transformation happen in the lives of kids and the lives of families, as these churches dive deep in order to take the gospel and to make it relevant in the hard places, Lord, I pray that you will work. Um, God, I pray that, 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 that you, will, you will work through them. God, I pray that this, the work that you do here will become a beacon 
a beacon for other, for other churches, for other cities, for other nations. Father, we confess. God, we confess that we need you. That this problem is too big, that this problem is too great, that God, it is beyond us. But God, we know that you have the power. You have the power to care for the fatherless through us to your glory. And we pray that it would be so. In the name of Jesus, amen. Yeah. Rick, thank you so much. One of the first things that just caught my attention when he was speaking tonight was the part of the story when you said that your wife came home and you had a fork in your hand and, and she said that, that she wanted to or thought y'all should adopt and your, your response was, I know the risk. <laughs> you want to talk about risk? Go talk to Mark and Marilyn McGraw. You want to, you want to talk about the risk of having your heart just ripped into? You, you want to know how to have no risk? Do nothing. Do absolutely nothing. But see, that is not an option. If we believe how Rick has revealed to us tonight through Scripture that of who we are in Christ, then, then that should propel us and call us to action. There's no way, there's no way that we can believe the truth that he preached on tonight and spoke of tonight of who we are in Christ and then just stand still and do nothing. There's no way. There's too many opportunities for us to care for the fatherless in this community and around the world. I don't know what it looks like for, for any of you or any of us, but I just think, and I was thinking, as Rick was talking, I was thinking of a story of, of just that I shared about Brad and how just God laid on his heart. And you may not be able to play the violin or sing or play the guitar like Justin, but you know what? You could go to Sound Choices, guys, and you could just stand outside of Sound Choices and just be used by God for young ladies to make sure they make it safely from their car into Sound Choices. You may be able to be part of Clement Arts. You may not be able to sing, but you might be able to say, listen, I know you have a concert coming up, and it's going to benefit a family that's going to adopt. Brad, just tell me what I need to do. Can I make cupcakes? Can I serve refreshments? What can I do? You may not uh, be, be called to adopt, but you might be called to go to Faithbridge and say, I don't know what this is all about. But I understand I might be able to help out in some way. You know what that might mean? It might be taking a foster child to the doctor. You might not want to have foster children in your car, in your home, but you might be able to talk to Shanika Carter with defects and say, listen, there's no way I could have a foster child in my house, but i tell you what I could do. I could give that foster family a night off. What do I need to do to do that? You see, there's so many things. Sometimes I'll come to talks like this. or other. You ever, Have you ever been to a church sermon or a church service sometime and just wish you hadn't come because you're so convinced? You know what I'm talking about? Y'all know the ones. Say, dang, if we were ever going to skip, this would have been a great morning. <laughs> and then I'll start thinking, well, God, I wish so-and-so was here. They really needed to hear that. I'm going to close with this. One of my favorite stories in Scripture, of all of Scripture, is at the end of the Gospel of John. And it's after Jesus has resurrected, and Peter and John are walking alongside with Jesus. And Peter, as he so often does, is quick to speak and quick to challenge and quick to worry about other things. And he says to Jesus, because what Jesus has just told Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, of course I do. And what does he tell him? Then feed my sheep. And he doesn't tell him that one time. He tells him three times. He said, Peter, you sure you love me? He said, yes, Jesus, I love you. He said, then feed my sheep. One more time, he says, Jesus, uh, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, I just told you that. Yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep. And you know what Peter does as they're walking along? Now, Jesus, what about old John? What's he got to do? What's he got to do? What's on his plate? And Jesus said, Peter, what's it to you if I let him live forever? What I've told you to do is feed my sheep. And so the reality is, is we all are here, whether we're from Cross Point or any other church in this community, there's something we can do. And let me tell you this, if you do something, if you do something, it's contagious. 
And so regardless of what church you're from, you do something. Got, uh, uh, men, you start showing up on Monday nights at Sound Choices from 7 to 8, and all you're doing is staring, standing at the door to make sure that young lady who, who is nervous as can be can get out of her car and go into that place safely. And you do that over and over again. Somebody's going to ask you, what are you doing? I'm just, I'm just doing my part. I'm just doing my part. Or if you have this strange child in your house about once a month, and they just spend the night, somebody's going to ask you, who is that child? Who, who is this? Well, I just give this foster care family a break. That's all I'm doing. What I'm saying is when we start doing these things in our community, Rick just talked about it, big things can happen. So don't, don't come tonight and say, well, I'm not interested in adopting. And I'm definitely not in, interested in getting my heart ripped apart like the McGraws did. Now, there's something for all of us. And so I'm glad you're here. God doesn't do anything by accident. And so he's called us to action. The gospel calls us to action. And so we've got to leave this place and do something. We have to. It's not an option. Not an option. Would y'all give Rick one more round of applause just for being here? I'm going to pray. Dessert is outside with maybe some coffee. Is it decaf? Can we speak to that? It's decaf. Okay. Decaf coffee, dessert. Make sure you stop at the table. Just find out some information. Give your name. Get on a mailing list. Let me pray. God, you are so kind and gracious to adopt us To adopt us as your children. And God, the scripture says that if we are children, then we are heirs. And so, would you pick us up, God, from our slumber? Would you give us energy when we don't have energy? Would you give us desire when we don't have desire? Would you give us motivation when we're not motivated? Would you encourage us when we're discouraged? Would you help us in this community, Lord, this community, where, where 500 children tonight are in foster care with 65 families to care for them? Would you do something miraculous in this community, Lord? Would you give the would you give the workers at, at DFACS, would you give them extra energy tomorrow just to handle a caseload that is unbearable? Would you give Miss Carter and would you give all of our friends at DFACS everything they need just to do it another day? And would you give us compassion, Lord, for the sojourner? Would you give us compassion, Lord, for the fatherless? Would you give us compassion, Lord, for the widow? Because, Lord, you did not presented as an option, Lord, because you saved us by your grace and mercy. You have commanded us to act. And so, Lord, give us everything we need in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming tonight.